Welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 514. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, go ahead and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Dr. Nicole Price. Nicole is a keynote speaker, training leader, and CEO of Lively Paradox, providing expertise in leadership training Olympic-level performance improvement, and engineering team concepts into the workplace. She's also author of the brand new Spark Your Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization, published by Forbes Books. In this conversation with Nicole, we discuss her career as a chemical engineer, how she came about to write a book about empathy, her work with companies, and how to bring empathy into the boardroom and company culture. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please go ahead and consider dropping in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Dr. Nicole Price, how lovely to have you on my show. I uh, came across your new book, Spark the Heart. And you are the CEO of Lively Paradox, a speaker, a training leader, and um, obviously, you are trying to spark some hearts. In your own words, Nicole, Dr. Nicole Price, who are you? I am an empathy convert. That's how I like to describe myself. Um, classically trained as an engineer, most things that I have achieved in life were because I was able to be logical and reasonable. And... Um, I learned the hard way, even though I think you can learn the pleasant way, that uh, people are not problems to be solved, that we can connect and still get lots of things accomplished. In fact, probably more. So I want to get back into that, well, because this is maybe a little bit flirting a dangerous zone, but I've always felt that it's a masculine type of mindset that just sees every problem as something to be solved. Hmm. And and then, so for example, in the books that were written back in the 90s, um, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, or the other book, which I found better a couple of years before, called You Just Don't Understand Men and Women in Conversation, there's this constant need to solve problems that men have. So even then, when a someone else is talking, typically a woman, is talking about a problem, the man jumps in and says, well, this is how you got to fix it. And, and I know that, she says, but I was just telling you about it, you know, and, and it's a different type of, of uh, observation. But I also happen to imagine that it's a very engineering mindset as well. It is. As I was listening to you talk, I was thinking nothing more than I resemble that comment. Mm-hmm. Um, when people come to me with challenges, my first thought is, what's the solution to it? Um And I don't know if I was trained to do that or if I was doing that already. So I found my way to engineering. I'm not sure which one came first, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's still my first thought, if I'm being honest. But my second thought is wait to allow the person to let me know what they need from me in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that is something I can do more of. My wife will tell you. Um, 
So you you certainly uh, say you are an empathy convert, and, and and your first chapter is something along the lines, I'm the worst person to be writing a book about empathy. You're very honest in your book. And I think that is the first learning I got from the way you write and what you're talking about. And the, the story about your mother is is really gripping and obviously very touching. Um, it, when we were just before we were recording, you said, well, you know, I, I do actually have somatic empathy where I feel it. Talk, talk, talk to us about why you come from it, this idea of, of empathy, but you being the wrong person. How is it the, the daughter of a super empathic person, woman, uh, doesn't feel that she's the right person? Well, my mother is my example. And when I consider myself against her, <laughs> when you compare us to each other, I think, who midget amongst giants, um, because it all was so natural for her, at least it seemed as if it were. Um, and for me, it is a second thought in most cases. I'm not always, but in most cases, it's not the first thing I think. I have to, and sometimes it takes me weeks to get to a position of truly understanding how a person feels. May I, may I give you an example? Please do. Uh, recently for some volunteer work I did, um, the Kansas City Chiefs is a local football team. They had won the Super Bowl. And so there was a meeting we were going to have that was contrasting with the, the Super Bowl weekend. And so a few people came to me and said, hey, I'm going down, you know, where the game's going to be played. I'm going to miss the meeting. Several other people said they were going to miss the meeting for other reasons. Logic says, move the meeting, Nicole. It's inconvenient. So I think this is a wonderful idea. I moved the meeting. Uh, I, I looked at the bylaws and I learned that I could move the meeting. I moved the meeting. And then there's silence. I'm not, I'm not uh, worried about silence, except for if you've been part of large women's organizations and anything changes and you don't hear anything, you sh you know that there's a problem. Yeah. I don't know what the problem is just yet, but I know it's coming and everybody's talking about it in the back channels and mm. it'll come to me. Mm. Well, when it comes to me, um, it comes to me in this way. Well, I don't watch football. I've planned my schedule around this meeting day and why would you move it when my schedule has already been set? And it was, and I can wrap it all up in, well, what about me? And I thought, okay, let me try as best I can to try to get into the shoes of another to understand. And it was so hard for me only because even if I didn't like football, I would appreciate not having to meet that day. I'm like, oh, I got some free time back. Wonderful. But that was me continuing to put myself in my shoes and thinking about it from my life and how busy I am and how excited I'd be that I don't have to have this meeting. It took me a few days to realize that for some people, this is the thing they've been looking forward to all month. They don't have anything else uh, in their life that allows them to feel um. I don't want to say important because that's not it. I don't think that it's importance. I think that it is this organization gives them an opportunity to make an impact in the world. They look forward to these meetings and I 
kind of willy-nilly without thought, didn't consider all the perspectives. It took me weeks to be able to say that without cynicism. Mm. Like I just couldn't get there. And that was this, I mean, that was this year. That's that's why I think I'm the, I'm not great at this. Well, it's very it's it's very refreshing for you to to explain that because I mean when when we're in this world of of em- empathy activism, you kind of think it just sort of happens easily. Um, you know, well, yeah, I got this muscle. I've been flexing, and and yeah, I get it. And it's my first call. No, and and somehow it's sort of it's almost like some ideas you don't get them right away. They gel while you're in the shower. They 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 spark while you're on a walk. Well after the initial start of the idea, if you will. So, and one of the reflections I had as I was reading your book, you talked about, for example, I think it was your grandmother or an older lady in the hospital being pushed and they weren't taking care of her look. Um, which was important to this older lady. I don't remember if it was your grandmother or something. And and then I was thinking, oh well, gosh, is it is it also our need and our role to have empathy for the person pushing the chair, who's Absolutely. not right? And, and it's like well, at some point you also have to have an opinion. You say right. You, sometimes you need to m- put a mark in the sand as to what is good and what is bad. And come into this with not a solution necessary, but hey, listen. At the end of the day, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And and if if you get too tied up in trying to be empathic with everybody, well, at some level you might not even have time to come down with the sanction of this stressed yeah wheelchair pusher. When I when I first uh, started paying attention to this intensely. I was overwhelmed Um, because I am thinking about what is the older woman's experience like in the nursing home, you know, disheveled and smelly and food is cold. Feeling lonely. Feeling lonely. But then what is going on with the person who can walk past that every day and be numb? For me to see it the first time, I'm shocked, appalled even, because I'm not seeing it every day. Hundreds of patients over and over and over again. Many people whose families show up on the weekends just to complain, not to help. And what's that person's experience like? Who teaches them self-care and boundaries? What's the leadership like of the nursing home? What kind of experiences are they having? What is driving them? But when you look at that entire system, my little space is to say, it's not about this older lady necessarily. It is about the person who owns this nursing home, who wants people to entrust their family members in his or her care, And if people are going to trust you, then there needs to be a certain climate there in your nursing home. And you could probably expand um, by a hundred times if you could figure out how to motivate the person pushing the wheelchair to take rest, to be mindful, to have boundaries, to not become numb, 
Um, and that's my space, that leader of that nursing home. And I, I had to find where my space was because otherwise I was thinking about all of it and it was too much for me. That makes so much sense, Nicole. Certainly from my perspective, Nicole, the, the idea of having a coherent strategy to your culture and therefore where empathy would sit is to operate within your organization with all the employees in such a manner that reflects how you'd like the employees to treat the patients or the clients or, or whatever it is the next level. And if you don't do that, then it's unlikely to be either authentic or durable. And that's what I'm, I think you and I are certainly in agreement there. Because when I consider my experience going into a nursing home and, and me using that example, it wasn't my grandmother, it was a random situation right. that I saw. Um, the truth is that in two months, going every day at different times of the day, I never saw the person who led the nursing home. Oh, wow. Not once. I couldn't tell you if it was a man or a woman. They were never there. What's that term you use for being on the field that you use, say, a few times in the book? Ogeny or it's like an expression? A gemba. Gem yeah, it's a gemba. Yeah, that's it. A gemba. Yeah, so I went to, um, I was just going to do a visit for a family member. But while I was writing this book, I started just being intensely aware of lots of different situations. And yeah, so I did a gemba. I said, let me, let me just see what the leadership situation is like. Completely non-existent. It's hard to be empathetic if you're not there. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, anyway, you should know what's going on in on your on the the shop floor, if they call it whatever that. Yes. That. So, in in the book, you um, well, first I wanted to ask you because you really start with the story about your mother, mm -hmm. and it's a very touching part. And um, and I was just wondering to what extent, Nicole, you might have asked yourself. I you're I believe you're the fifth of. You're the fifth child, or the more after six. The six of seven. I'm the sixth six one. Didn't catch all the details there, but um, have you ever thought to yourself what your mother might have thought about reading the book? Well, um, there's a major piece that's missing from the book that occurred right when I was writing it, and your questions prior to us getting started, I think, make me feel like maybe you felt like something was missing. Is that true, Minter? Well, since I write, I always know there's there are things that are edited out. And sometimes that can be because it, it involves somebody else, which happened to me in my first book a lot. In other times, it's because the editor didn't agree. That's another battle. And the third reason that's happened to me is um, a co-author co and the battle mm. that goes on the co-writing. So... I, uh, I'm, I'm naturally thinking about those things, but I can't say that was a specific feeling. The, the feeling I, I mean, what I, I just wanted to lean into that relationship and the story that you tell about your mom and, and how different you were to her and, and how awkward it made you feel about writing a book about empathy. And so I was just thinking, I, I'd love to know what you left out, but let curiosity be what it must be. Although you do talk a lot about curiosity too. Yes. Well, in the middle of the book, um, 
I just still felt vehemently (laughs) that I was not the person to write the book. I know the world needs empathy. I know I need more of it, but I'm like, I am not the person to write this book. So we're having a little bit of a, you know, how does the person who does what I do for a living write a book about empathy? Because I'm with other leaders who are more like I was, who don't really, they're not going to pick up this book. It's a spark the heart for goodness sakes. Why would I not going to pick that book up? I'm more likely to pick up a book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I mean, you know, this is not the kind of thing I would pick up. Well, as the universe is always beautiful and kind to us, in the middle of writing this book, I found out my father was not my father. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Long story, I'll save you the details, but all of a sudden I had, I was experiencing emotions that I'd never felt before and that I had been incredibly dismissive of. I needed to build my effective empathy. I hadn't, I'd always been up here in my head around doing cognitive things, because as you say, and as you know, cognitive is easier to teach. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I was feeling emotions that I had never felt before. Incredible amounts of betrayal. Uh, I felt, I felt uh, deceived. I was confused. I couldn't work. I was angry, all the things. But what I wasn't prepared for was for people to think that I would be angry with my mother or that somehow she wasn't a good mother. And so we scrapped the original opening because unlike my mother is the reason why I'm empathetic at all. So let me tell you about her um, because you need to understand that for me to get here, it's not possible without her. Um, And I go on to tell the story about how she was killed by a drunk driver and Um, what that did to me emotionally and what it helps me to understand about my own employees when they're dealing with incredible amounts of grief. But some of that, I think I had to learn through personal experience. Um, Not, I don't know that I could have gotten it in a classroom. I'm not sure. I don't think you learn empathy really in a classroom in general, unless you have an empathic teacher who's, yeah, who's, who's, developing it and doing it explicitly. I have my friend, Ed Kerwin, who's done it. He's created a program specifically around films of other people that can be used for you to lean into their different lives as a way. So specifically, but for the rest, it's, it's, I think you, I think to your point, it's more about the experiences you have. And like you say, you know, just because you haven't had the experience doesn't mean you can't understand it. But for some of them, it's a whole, you just, you know, it's some things you just can't say, oh, I understand. Oh, I understand how you're feeling. Uh-uh. Because I ain't been there. I can't possibly, I just, I want you to talk to me about how you're feeling. Let that be the conduit. Yes. And if you can explain your feelings, um, then I can try to remember when I've had something similar to it. Also through this process, I was introduced to a book called Permission to Feel Mm. uh, to help us recognize our emotions and understand them, label them uh, Mm. so that we can find healthy ways to express them and then regulate. Well, my life was nothing more than regulation. I spent all my life just regulating, (laughs) recognizing and understanding and labeling and all of it. I spent no time there. I gave it no energy. And I 
I think that's um, in my workshops, I'm going to talk to people about the necessity for being able to, even if you don't share with anybody else, understand your own emotions. Like, how can I recognize emotions in you if I don't recognize them in myself? Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. It's, you know, I've been working with a lot of people who work on the artificial intelligence and the ability to humanize or, or, or there's part of its work of recognizing emotions. And that's a difficult task t- today for a machine to do because there are so many emotions. And as I've spoken with several of the people working on this, actually, it's also difficult for us, even though I might know the word angry and frustrated, uh, disappointed or despondent or these are these other emotions that I might be feeling to, to be exactly correct in expressing the emotion I'm having at this particular time like when you discovered that your father wasn't your father that uh, you can f- and even wanting to put a label like anger on it it, it must be complicated because it, it's sort of some self-awareness oh my gosh why am I feeling angry about this oh I don't I don't you know, people like me don't don't feel angry about this sort of thing. We we rise above it. We wait a second. I'm angry, and then finally processing it, you get to it. I mean, that must have been such a shock to at your age. You know, think how your identity is different. Your last name is different as a result, or at least could have been different. I suppose if if we were to put, I don't know the details, but that must have been uh, very unsettling. Very unsettling. The other thing that was complicated about it is if somebody was trying to empathize with me, as people were. Sometimes it was anger, er, anger. Sometimes it was depression. Sometimes it was loneliness. Sometimes it was confusion. Sometimes it was fury. Like, <laughs> how do you connect with that when it's you know all over the place? Um, and when it all settled out, it was grief. It was grieving a reality I thought existed that didn't. Um, and the reason I think that is so important that it happened in the middle of writing this book was because it did help me be more honest about Mm -hmm. how hard this is. Sometimes when you, when you learn empathy differently, um, I think there's a sense a sensitivity when you're in pain that you have to other humans in the world who are also in pain that I'm not sure that you have otherwise. But then when you get to experience great joy, at least for me, now it's different. I have a greater appreciation for joy, even at having experienced and not repressed the other mm. um, emotions. And that's what makes me a little nervous about trying to build empathy in organizations is because I'm not sure that it's possible without the emotional component. And so many of us don't want to be vulnerable about the the emotions we feel. If I ask in a, a workshop, you know, what emotion are you bringing into the space today? The things people feel okay saying are the more centered emotions. Oh, mind, I'm, I'm mindful, I'm focused. I'm, people are happy to say those. Mm-hmm. No one wants to tell you they're grieving the loss of their dog. Every once in a while someone. Yeah. 
in the workplace. Right. Right. We, we, that adage, it's not business. It's personal. Uh, it's not personal. It's business, you know, leave that at the door for the first time at almost 50, I experienced that you cannot leave it at the door. It is following you. Um, when I when I did meet the man who is my father, he's alive, you know, and both my parents are deceased. When I met my biological father, he's still living. And I look like him. So imagine Zoom calls now for me when I'm looking at myself in the screen. And before I used to see no one because I didn't, I don't think I looked much like my mom. Right. I didn't see anybody. Although you knew you were a part of your mom. You were. Your your mother was yours. I knew my mother was mine. At least I thought. And someday we'll have a a cocktail and talk about um, all the intricacies of this story. Mm. But to look at a camera and for the first time see another human being's face Mm. is quite, it's actually quite disruptive. So here I am working and now I have this new experience. And I imagine that's true if you find out you have cancer. I imagine that's true if you find out you're going to have a new boss and you've had um, a really good relationship with your previous boss. I imagine that's true if you're not meeting your sales numbers. I imagine that's true if you're going through a divorce or if you're worried about your kid doing drugs. All of the human experiences that we have probably make it a little hard to focus sometimes on work. But the days when I felt better were the days when I had an opportunity to talk with someone who I thought could at least connect with the fact that I was struggling. Mm. Um, And he um, is my 80 year old friend named Jim. He's my mentor of sorts. And he, he was just check in. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't ask about details. He's just checking in to make sure I'm okay. Um, meaning that my feet are still attached to my ankles and (laughs) and those kinds of things. And it made it just that check-in made it easier to continue. And I think that's the, the small way I'm trying to get leaders to understand this concept instead of separating ourselves from other people when they are dealing with things. Lean in a bit, connect, and try to imagine what it would be like if it were you. Um, And that should help you make better people decisions, I think. So I want to go back to this, uh, the grieving portion, not, not specifically about grieving, but you were mentioning all these different emotions and there, they talk about the five steps or the five stages or phases of grieving. And, and, and maybe they're not so linear as, you know, you think step phase one and then you move to phase two and engineering wise. And and how we have different humors in our day. You know, we wake up in a certain mood and then something comes around that changes it. You see the sun, the smile lights up and or you see an old friend and, and all of a sudden the drive to work is is blah, blah, blah. you have a good music on the radio, something changes and then you get to work and then you see somebody, your nemesis and, and then up and down, up and down. And 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 the fact is that it's pretty impossible for any person, much less yourself, to be completely up to date with where you are in your context, in your emotions all the time. So I feel like it at, at really on balance, 
the 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 possibility of empathy is always on a lower scale than a hundred percent. The chances of being a hundred percent accurate about how you are feeling in this moment, Nicole, as we're talking, um, I have a little bit of it, but I I don't know where which side of what stories were impacting you, what's going on in your body, and not enough data as far as I in this particular case is concerned. But when you're interfacing with many people as a leader. One person's sales number didn't come in. The other person has a son he's worried about doing drugs. Another person, and so you're 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 confronted with a lot of different situations, and and so I I've long wanted to move away from being sort of an the dictator of empathy, as in you must be empathic all the time with everybody everywhere, because that's just first of all completely impossible. Second of all, I think it's absolutely undesirable because if you start being that way, first of all, you're gonna you're gonna shrivel up and, and suffer, and two, you won't get anything else done. You'll just be spending your time in a situation of abeyance, looking around, asking questions, and saying, "Oh my God, what's going on around here?" Well, I, I th- like I told you I, at the beginning, I was overwhelmed. I think, um, and you tell me what you think about this, but I think that people who are naturally empathic are more likely to have built boundaries for themselves that work. Whereas those of us who realize later that, oh crap, I have not been paying attention at all. Now we're like, let me pay attention. I sometimes feel like I've got a stamp across my forehead that says, tell me about your problems. And and it and it can be overwhelming. I I did not have this before. I can guarantee you I did not have this before. People did not just stop me at the grocery store and say, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but this is this thing that happened to me. And it happens all the time now. Now but I'm, and not before. Now and not before. And, um, but I also notice people who certainly are not feeling great. I don't always know what it is, but I noticed that there's something. And I didn't notice that kind of thing before. I just go in the grocery store, get my apples. Like I'm not yeah. paying attention to the people in the store. Um, and so I I noticed that for me, I had to learn how to let that pass through me, not let it come in and sit. <laughs> yeah. So if you feel something, how to let that come in, um, and not be indifferent towards it because that's not what's happened, but let it pass through. It's not, my, I don't, I don't have to hold whatever pain you have. It's just for the seconds that you're with me, acknowledge the humanness in you and then I can be there for a moment. Um, but that took some work to, for me to figure that out. That's a balance. Um, yeah. I was having lots of uh, anxiousness that I didn't have before when I first started trying to be more connected to people emotionally, the effective part, not just the cognitive. Well, I, I, you know, I'm just imagining what is it that that sign that says, you know, tell me, tell me more, which is the name, by the way, of the book by um, our mutual contact, Rob Volpe, my uh, fellow enthusiast. And my wife is also somebody who has that look uh, that is, (laughs) you know, I'm going to dump my problems on you kind of look. And I have to imagine my feeling as I look at you in this video is it's through the eyes that that happens. Mm. 
And I'm wondering if it's not these experiences that has changed your, in French is a beautiful word, it's le regard, which is the look in your eyes. Mm. I, I, I imagine so. I mean, I certainly feel different after the litany of experiences that I shared in the book and then others that have happened since then. Um, but I don't know. I didn't know how it is that other people can sense it and feel it. Even, even clients. I've had more clients cry telling me about something in, uh, in private than ever before. And I love that they have that, that they feel that level of comfort because it allows me to support them more authentically. We would have been working on the wrong things. It's an amazing place to be once you're into that level of trust mm-hmm. with, with your clients and your colleagues. You, you're, right, you're right. And I was really interested to how you came into this. And I sort of interpreted it as your mission. You wrote, my work is to acknowledge the dignity in every person. And clearly, this is not a description of your engineering. <laughs> but is is that your mission? And, and how did you come to that phrase? Because it's very pretty. Yeah, I think it's my my kind of personal mission. So what I realized in engineering is that we were taught not to think about people as beings with dignity. And let me tell you, let me give you an example. I've got 50 million widgets I have to get out every day out the door. Mentor, if you can't be at work today because your stomach hurts, I need to be able to plug someone else into that spot. Does it matter who that someone else is? Does it matter about their abilities, their their loves, their interests? They just need to be able to do your job exactly as you do. So without without stopping the line, so we can get these 50 million pieces out every day. In fact, most of the time we were trained to create processes and here's how we would say it. And so that no dummy can screw it up. Isn't that awful to say that? That's awful to say that. Yeah, value, value, of, value of the role, right? So if, when, when I was in school, I remember vividly, if we created a maze and the mouse couldn't figure it out, it was our fault because the maze should be such that no matter what you put in there, they can figure it out. So you got to keep working until you get to a process that no one can screw up. It's the reason why you can't plug your uh, charger on your phone into the wrong hole. Like you can't do it. You can't put the battery in the wrong way. It won't let you. It's not possible. Um that type of training causes you not to look at people as individuals who deserve inherent dignity. And if there's one way I've gotten misunderstood through this empathy journey is that when I'm saying I want a more empathetic world, people think I'm saying make space for evilness, make space for dissenting opinions that are wrong. Mm-mm, not at all. What I'm saying instead is if I must put someone in jail because they did something wrong, because that, I mean, we need that in society. Do I want that person to be rehabilitated or do I want them to be perpetually punished? And the way jails are set up where you get people are getting raped in jail, they don't get good food. We don't care about if they learn anything. Um, The longer you stay, the more likely it is you go back. In a healthy society, to me, If I knew when you got out, you were going to live in my neighborhood next door to me, (laughs) I think I would think about jail very differently 
And that's what I mean about inherent dignity. Not that there shouldn't be people who go to jail. Not even that there shouldn't be people who are in jail forever. But if they're going to get out, what kind of jail, what do we want jail to be? If if someone who's been in jail before is going to be living next to me, what do I want their jail experience to have been? And that's what I mean when I'm talking about empathy. A couple of things. It feels like there's a a need for some sort of meta mission in order for us to, to accommodate the, the spectrum that you're talking about. For example, in my community, I'd like for us to have uh, a less violent or less crime, whatever. So if someone comes out of jail in my community, then if we can agree on what my community is, then we can agree to put pressure on the prison guards and the system to be better and the states and so on so that we can all agree because underneath that we'll have different opinions, right? So how do we how do we coalesce? And then there's another element which that's moving away from criminality per se, but in the, the messiness of life and 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 the ability to accept our imperfections. And and I was thinking that you would be looking at the word forgiveness at some level within that, which is totally not one of my strengths. Uh, my ability to forgive when I'm wronged is is uh, probably legendarily poor. Mm. But at some level, having empathy to accept and how someone gets into the imperfection of their lives is also something that helps unite or coalesce our community. You, um, you know what that makes me think of is someone said to me once, Nicole, you've done worse. And I remember thinking, what? No, I haven't. Because the thing that they were saying I'd done worse about, I was like, I haven't done that thing. But one of the reasons I was so honest in the book was because I thought it was important for me to share all the ways that I get it wrong. When there's an empathy gap, you tell me what your experience has been like. But what I've noticed is that people have not been honest about what their experiences are. Have I fired someone unfairly? Yeah. So why is it that we only talk about when we get fired unfairly? Mm -hmm. Somebody's out here firing people unfairly. Right. And it's not until um, someone recently, and I wish I could remember his name because I would attribute it. He said, look forward with hope, look backward with gratitude, look inward with honesty. Inward with honesty is what makes empathy more possible, I think. I think it even makes forgiveness more possible because you say, okay, if I think about the time I did this thing or something like it in this way, how did I want people to engage with me? Um, Now, the other thing I'll say is empathy is not always about just trying to understand, you know, what other people are thinking, feeling, and believing when it's bad. We don't even know that we get it when it's good. You know, if you you see people celebrating and people are like, oh, that's braggadocio. They need to be more humble or whatever. Celebrate with them. Yes. Let's celebrate with people. people. I I think that's, there's a generosity that must come underneath that. Yeah. To say, you know, because I think the big point that you just mentioned is the self-awareness piece, the, the honesty with self and knowledge of self. 
Because if I need to shit on someone's parade on a good day, well, there's something within me that's a problem. And then there's this notion of self-empathy. I, I, I've always, I've tried to say, well, I really want to accept my imperfections, mm. but not stop from wishing to improve them. Yes, it's about without, without seeking perfection. So it's because I, I, I think if we don't, if we're all trying to be prim and proper, that's actually no fun. All right, so let's allow naughtiness. Okay, well, how far do you want to go? And it, the, I was listening to a chap, a great adventurer uh, last week in, in Nantes, in France, and he was saying, if there is no risk, there is no adventure. Hmm. And I would add, if there's no adventure, there's little life. Ah. Does that spark in your heart? Well, what it makes me think about is the opposite. Uh, maybe just how my brain works, which then is like, how much of life are we missing out on? Because we are afraid we won't take the risk. We are more comfortable with whatever is lacking adventure and excitement in a spark. We have numbed ourselves. What's at stake for us to lose? And I think the world is losing a lot because for many of us, for too many of us, it's the safer choice to just go in that nursing home, push that chair, leave that nursing home and just don't show up. Nobody is calling you. It's easier. In in um in your work, uh, you do these seminars on, uh, and and I don't know much more about them, but I'd love it if you explain, in some short fashion, the lively paradox. Um, I I've written a lot about paradoxes, and I, and I my thought was just out of the blue. Well, these paradoxes are what makes us human, and and it's not about resolving them, per se as in, you know, getting rid of them. It's it's about learning how to live with them. And I was wondering where you go with your lively paradoxes, Nicole. Yeah, so uh, for the thing that I am naturally is a lively paradox. A high school teacher gave me that name um, when I was in English. And mostly because um, I just feel at home in lots of different spaces. And uh, she she said, my goodness, you're such a lively paradox. But my work is that way. In order for you to grow, we're going to have fun and laugh. And it's going to be a little painful. It's not growth, a little uncomfortable. Yeah, a few tears. Um, your people are going to walk away inspired uh, to, to try something new. And it's going to look ugly. And you're going to wonder what the heck is going on because they're like riding a bike without training wheels for a little bit. And I love development. I think we should all be focused on it. And the truth is, if people are trying to focus on some personal change, you paid me to come in for three hours. It's going to take them three years to really get there. And mm. that trying to hold all those things together in tandem at the same time is take skill. Um, and I think I'm good at helping people be more comfortable with it. Mm. And it's what you're saying about how do I accept that as a very clear extrovert that I talk too much and the world needs my voice. 
And you were right, Nicole. Uh, and and the re the specific reason I I think that, that is you're right is that you come at this from the position of I haven't been empathic, and I'm not a natural empathic. So I've gone at this the hard way. And and it's it's people who are like that that need this the most. And if you come at it like, well, you know, I'm a natural, and and you know, like it's say people who are naturally empathic do. You obviously come at it with a a far greater understanding of of the journey that is needed underneath for people to pick up your book and lean into it. And the second thing you do, Nicole, which is really charming, is that honesty piece, which I, at the end of the day, it's, it's like um, uh, I want to say the vulnerability, dare to lead. Um, Renee Brown. Her. Thank you. How how you you share that vulnerability, which makes the book so absolutely easy to read, and and therefore maybe less difficult for someone who's less empathic to want to pick up. Because I think that is your and my challenge, certainly the world I operate in and the way I have been, is to try to convince the non-empathic people, not just to make business better, because it sure shit does, but make life better, make home life better, make the way you interact with a cashier at, at, at the local mag uh, store. You don't need to be a dick. Mm-hmm. And it, it also, for me, has been a real self-regulator to know sometimes it's not the cashier at the store. It's I'm in the middle of my healing journey about my thing that I need to deal with. And I probably should stay home till I get it together. Like, fair, fair. Stop blowing my stuff through other humans. Whereas before, I would have absolutely thought that was all about the cashier at the store and not about whatever energy I was bringing into the space. And if you're thinking about like places where the editor kind of wins, I wasn't so sure that people who were like I was before would pick up a book called Spark the Heart. I lost that battle, but we'll see. I'm like, because I believe everything I've said about uh, our needing to tap into our own stuff to be able to do this well, avoiding that before. There, there are two things that I say uh, systematically render empathy difficult work which is stress and the lack of time mm. and if you are stressed out thinking about the the, the argument you had with a spouse or the uh, the condition you've just been diagnosed with well it's sure shit hard to then have the total presence of mind to listen to this other person wax on about their problem god if i told them my problem they'd be crying yeah i better stay at home and deal with it or at least be aware of it, to your point originally. Last question for you, Nicole. You, and you only drop it in, I just, I just picked it up because that's the way I am. You said, I was in the middle of a seminar around meaningful or having difficult conversations. So I'd love for you to tell us about what work you do on running difficult conversations. Yeah, so um, I, taught, I teach people uh, what are the things that, you know, help make, conversations a little easier to um, engage in. One thing that people don't um, always know that much about is that there are different communication styles and conflict management styles and change management styles and decision-making styles. Everyone doesn't see the world the way you do. Really? That seems so foundational. 
And I think people know that cognitively, but in practice, don't understand that, yes, there's someone who thinks whatever it is that you are vehemently sure of 100%, somebody in your organization probably wants to experience it differently. It's kind of like uh, the working from home thing. People are like, everybody wants to work from home. Actually, not so. There's a whole group of people that get a lot of energy when they're with other people and have great ideas when they're with other people. They don't want to be at home by themselves. They would love to be more with other people. And, and folks look at me and they tilt their head. They go, what? Yes, <laughs> there are. Uh, so we talk about uh, type and style. We also talk about listening, which you're very familiar with. How do you listen for understanding and not for accuracy. What are the words behind the words? Read the tea leaves. What is the person trying to say versus what they're actually saying? Um, and then I actually teach the art of the gimba. Oh. If you're having trouble understanding what someone is doing. So let's say mentor you and I were um, in partnership together and working together regularly. I would make it a point to come to where you are um, and be with you in community for a day doing what you do so that I know what it's like to not, if I, what happens if I don't get to, something to you on time? What happens if I show up late so that I get that experience? And then I'd, I'd love to invite you to do the same. It allows us to physically walk in the shoes of another a little bit. Yeah, totally. And that improves our communication with each other. We're, we're speaking closer to the same language. Love it. So Nicole, uh, our time has come to a far too quick end. But um, so the art of the gemba, the uh, getting to know one another, what are the best ways for people to contact you? Obviously, get your book as they must, Spark the Heart. Yeah. So if they're interested in the workshop, LivelyParadox.com is the best place to, to get the workshops. But if people are interested in um, just a keynote, just for me to talk about the high level ideas and inspire people around this topic. Um, it's drnicoleprice.com. Happy to come and, and talk about this uh, ad nauseum. <laughs> Need to spark an empathy revolution. Indeed we do. Nicole, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for writing this book and thanks for coming to my show. I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on interdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. Stephanie Singer, a convinced man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust is a reason. Still, I won't tell the lie. I sit here passively, hope for your respect, anticipating the thrill of your intellect. Maybe 
Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs 
who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.